This is a message on love. And we should probably begin by acknowledging that that word, love, is probably the most abused word in the English language. Uh, it's, it's a word that we use so often, and of course it's a very deep word, it's a meaningful word, but we tend to use it flippantly, don't we? I mean, I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. That on one hand, I tell my children that I love them, but then I also say I love a good cheeseburger. Or I, I tell my wife that I love her, but I also catch myself this time of year talking about how much I love college football. Now, of course, those things are not even in the same conversation, truly. You think about trivial things like food and football. I don't really love those things the way I love my family, but it, it goes to show just how cheaply we can use a word like that to communicate our various feelings. When we use the word love, what do we really mean? Well, Jesus didn't hesitate from using this word. In fact, if you read through the Gospel of John especially, Jesus uses the word quite often. But when Jesus spoke of love, he didn't use that word flippantly, not a single time. Jesus never talked about trivial things when he used the word love. Rather, he pointed to the quality of love that originates in God himself. Remember what John wrote? This is from 1 John. He said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son, sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is the kind of pure and perfect love Jesus had in mind when he used that word. That love does not originate within us, but it's, it's found in the heart of God and it propels God to act on our behalf, that he would send his own son. That's the, that's the very bedrock of what love is meant to be. And it, it, it bears itself out in how Jesus tells his disciples how to live. There's a very famous command Jesus gave us in John 13. He said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Now what's new about that? That doesn't seem like a new command, but then Jesus qualifies it. He says, even as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. In other words, Jesus says the quality of your love for others should reflect the love you have received from your Savior, which eliminates college football from the love conversation, doesn't it? It eliminates cheeseburgers or any other trivial thing from the love conversation. This is a love far deeper than any trivial thing that we might happen to have an affection for. It also eliminates Whitney Houston's definition of the word. If you're a child of the 80s, you remember that great song. She said, the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. Uh, good song, bad message. That is not the quality of love that Jesus calls us to when he says that we are to be his disciples and to love one another. See, the question becomes, if we took Jesus's definition seriously, if we took the biblical standard of love seriously, then we have to ask ourselves, what if we actually loved like that? What if we actually loved others the way Jesus loved us, unselfishly, sacrificially, perseveringly, and completely? 
Well, at Harvest Church, that's our goal. And it's, it's a very high bar. It's a lofty goal. But when we say that we want to love like Jesus loved us, that, that can't be something that we compromise on, that we negotiate on or take flippantly. And that's why for us, our third primary value, core value that defines who we are and drives us, we say it like this, love pursues. Love pursues. Because it's not enough for us merely to talk about love. Remember how cheap the word can become when we only talk about it? But when we, when we actually display it, when we say there's a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting love within us that's been given to us and it propels us to act, see, that's a love that rearranges our priorities. That's a love that reorients our lives around a greater purpose and it pushes us beyond our comforts. That's the kind of love that pursues others rather than being content to just use the word uh, trivially. Now, there are a lot of great examples of how this is lived out in the Bible. I mean, we have plenty to choose from. I wanted to look at Acts chapter 20 today, and I wanted us to, to find our example in the Apostle Paul, partly because we've been studying as a church through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And here in Acts 20, we actually have insight into a conversation that Paul had with the Ephesian church that is not recorded in the book of Ephesians, but we see it in Acts chapter 20. Now, for context here, Paul is on a missionary journey, and he's making his way to Jerusalem, to the center of the Jewish world, where he will share the gospel of Jesus with the Jews in Jerusalem. And everybody around Paul is keenly aware that he is about to walk into a firestorm of persecution. Everyone around Paul is panicking because they know what awaits him there. And Paul knows exactly what he's stepping into. This is no secret to him. But they're scared for him. They don't want him to go. And in Acts 20, Paul calls together a secret meeting of the leaders, the elders of the church in Ephesus, to say goodbye to them one last time. I I will not see you again, he tells them. And I want you to look at what he says to them. This is Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know that from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul doesn't actually use the word love here, but it saturates the entire paragraph. I mean, love jumps off the page 
here. I mean, I want you to think about this. Here's a man, the Apostle Paul, here's a man who loves God so much that he completely trusts the Lord in the midst of terrible danger. Paul is not fearful for his life. He loves God and trusts God. Paul loves the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He loves the gospel so much that he's willing to risk his life to share it. And he loves others so much that he is committed to sharing Christ with the very people who are plotting his demise. He loves others so much that he wants nothing more than to share the gospel with even his own enemies. Now, contrast this with the natural love that we all have for ourselves. This is fundamental to what it means to be a human being, that we love ourselves, and that's a love that seeks comfort. That's a love that seeks self-gratification. A love for self that seeks safety and security and self-preservation. But you know, we don't find any of that in Paul here. We see none of that selfish love on display. And I want you to just walk through very quickly again with me, beginning in verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In verse 21, I called you instead to repentance. Verse 22, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me when I get there. So why wasn't Paul scared? Why? I mean, why wasn't he self-preserving? Why wasn't Paul doing what the natural thing would be, which maybe is to kind of look for a way out of this? Well, he tells us in verse 24, we see it again. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly, seriously, of the gospel of the grace of God. This is a man who is so overcome with love, love for his Savior, love for those who need to hear about Jesus, that he doesn't even consider his life of any value by comparison. He says, my life is incidental, provided that I can live out this mission that I've been given. Now that's a love that is inexplicable. That's a love that's unnatural. And as impressive as that kind of love is that's on display in Acts 20. I want you to I want you to see actually how Paul takes it even a step further. Something he doesn't say in Acts 20, but part of how his heart was formed in this great mission that that he was on for the sake of of the gospel. We see it in Romans 9. If you're really quick, you can turn to Romans 9. But Paul now in Romans 9, he he writes in a sense from his own hand about the, the love that he has for others and specifically the love that he has for the Jews here, those who are his countrymen, Paul was a Jew, but also those who have rejected faith in Jesus at this stage. And in Romans 9 verse 1, here's here's Paul's own words. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I wish that I could be accursed if it meant the Jews would be saved. Or to put it more bluntly, I 
would willingly go to hell. I would spend eternity in hell if it meant my countrymen would accept Christ and they could go to heaven. And remember, these are the same people who have become Paul's enemies. These are the people who want to put him in prison at best and kill him at worst. Now, how in the world does Paul develop such a deep love for these people, his enemies, that he would be willing even to spend eternity apart from God if it meant that they could be reconciled to God? I mean, how on earth does a person develop that kind of self sacrificing love for others, a love that pursues people with such a godly passion. Well, there are two things that I want to focus on today. There are many answers to that question as to what motivated and created this love in Paul's heart. Two things, though, I want to show us that I think are certainly true of Paul, but they can be true of us too, as to what brings about this kind of love, a love that would pursue others with this kind of passion. The two things are grace and mission. Very simple. Grace and mission. Now, when I say grace, we studied a few weeks ago from Ephesians chapter 3 how Paul saw himself. When Paul looked in the mirror, what did he see? Well, that changed over the course of time. If you look in Ephesians, or or rather Philippians 3, you get a sense of what Paul was in his past life, and it was very impressive. But the gospel changed him. And now Paul looked at himself through the lens of grace. And he says in Ephesians 3 that he was made a minister of the gospel by the gift of God's grace and power, even though he was the least of all Christians. And this is Paul's self-confession here. This is how he identifies himself. He says, I am the least of all the saints, the worst of the worst. And now think about that. There's a sense in which Paul has been elevated because of the gospel, right? Like we all have. That he has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He tells us that in Ephesians 1. But the gospel has also profoundly humbled him. It's leveled him so that he can look at himself rightly and understand that everything he is, he's simply a product of grace. He says, grace was given to me even though I'm the least of all the saints. So grace, it humbled Paul just as it empowered him. It laid him low just as it raised him high. Now think about it from our perspective. If the gospel of grace says that you are saved not as a result of your own goodness or strength or morality or religious activity, but rather you are saved entirely as a free gift of God. You trust in Christ and receive his grace fully. That grace, that gift, forever changes how you look at other people. We tend to think of grace as changing our relationship with God, and of course it does. But it also changes our relationship with others. And I'll give you maybe a more practical example, a real-life example of this. Let's talk about disenfranchised people. Our relationship to uh, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, the marginalized uh, within our society. Typically, we who do not fit that category, typically we 
have two natural responses to choose from here. This is, this is the human heart. On one hand, we can look down our noses at those who are marginalized. On the other hand, we can have pity on them and feel sorry for them. Those are the two basic natural responses. Now, of course, if I look down on people who are disenfranchised, it's probably because I think they just don't work as hard as I do. And they don't have as much resolve as I have. And maybe they just got what they deserved. I got what I deserved. I'm successful. I'm secure. They got what they deserved. There's a reason they're there. Right? Now, that's a horrible way of thinking, but it's a valid option in, in terms of the natural viewpoint of how we look at the world and how we look at others. Now, the far better thing, of course, is that we would pity people in those situations, that we would feel sorry for them. And, and we know this feeling when, we, when, you know, when the, the commercials come on that try to ask for our money concerning those who are impoverished. I suspect you're like me. There's this instantaneous sense of guilt. A lot of us will change the channel to avoid sitting in that guilt because we feel bad. We feel bad uh, for their circumstances, and maybe we even feel guilty for our own comforts. But there's this natural sense of, of pity maybe that we have. But I want to tell you that that's still problematic because even if we pity those less fortunate than us, we are still elevated above them. We still, in a sense, look down on them, not with disdain, but with a sense of pity and guilt. And maybe we'll give money, maybe we'll do something on their behalf, but often it's only to uh, assuage our own sense of guilt and to make ourselves feel good <coughs> about what we're doing. Now, those, are, those, to me, are natural heart responses, but I want you, I want you to see what the gospel does here. Because the gospel does something very unnatural. The gospel tells us something about ourselves that circumstantially may not be true at all, but at the heart level, it's absolutely true. And if we don't believe this, then we can't receive the grace of Jesus. The gospel says about you and me that we are poor in spirit. We are poor in spirit, impoverished. That we are spiritually bankrupt, and in, in a sense, we're homeless apart from Jesus. We are in darkness we are hopeless. We were orphans, separated from God's family. We were refugees. We were wandering far from God without any true home, without a place to call home. But that's when the good news is ushered into us, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to God. We who were poor have been made rich spiritually. We who were homeless and orphaned have been brought into the household of God. This is all through Ephesians. That we who were once lost and completely hopeless have now been made children of God for all eternity. Now think about how if, if I really grasp those truths and I understand what I was, then grace tells me that I'm the same as everybody else. I don't look down on anyone because they have been made in the image of God the same as me and I was, I was destitute apart from Christ Just as they may be destitute circumstantially, I was destitute in the far uh, worse sense of that word, spiritually apart from Jesus. And so what does grace do for me? What does it do for you? It levels the playing field. 
Anyone who is circumstantially worse off than us, we don't look down on them, even if it's with good intentions and pity. We don't look down on them. We look at them eye to eye and we're able to honor them because we know we're the same as they are. Situationally, maybe we're wealthier and more secure, but at the deepest level of, of, of just spiritual reality, we're the same. And that gives us the ability to truly love them, to truly honor them. Because grace has leveled the playing field for all of us. I think one of the key reasons that Paul could love people the way he did is because grace had humbled him. Why was Paul not better than his enemies? Why was Paul so eager to share the gospel with even those who wanted his own head? Because he wasn't better than them. The same grace that saved him was available now to them, and he wanted them to know about it. The, the, the field had been leveled. See, grace doesn't just change our relationship with God. It changes how we view and how we treat other people. We're able to love them because we see who we really are in the mirror. We're not better than anybody else. The second thing that I think motivated Paul's love for people was mission. His mission. If you go back to Acts 20, verse 24, and I, I hope you'll memorize this verse. It's a, such a tremendous, life-altering kind of verse where Paul essentially gives us his, his mission statement for life. Verse 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly, seriously, of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's love was driven by his life's mission. He was compelled by a higher calling to make Jesus known wherever he went. Now, the argument has been made that this kind of love is, uh, is actually wrong. The idea that we love people because we want them beyond our own love, we want them ultimately to receive Jesus and to know Christ See, that's loving people with strings attached. And therefore, that's, that's really insufficient love. That's, that's the argument. That you should just love people, period, with no strings attached. And whether they ever receive Jesus or not should be irrelevant. We should just love them just because. Now, I think Paul would respond to that and say that unless you are driven by a greater mission, in this case, unless you are driven by the mission of the gospel, then you're not really loving people at all. You're not really loving people at the deepest level. Now, think about it this way. In our culture, and this is a blinding flash of the obvious for me to say this, but in our culture, we have a particular way of defining love in this day and age. And that, that definition of love is really all about tolerance, isn't it? It's a very broad, sweeping thing that we ought to tolerate and accept and even affirm everybody for everything they do, that, that what a person does, what a person decides, what a person believes, everything is, uh, is wide open and we ought to accept people, period. That's what it is to be loving. And if you dare infringe on or even disagree with a person's choices, a person's behavior, a person's identity, well, then you're unloving. What an unloving and intolerant thing to do. Okay? Well, 
I think there are many problems with this perspective. But first and foremost, the problem here, the problem with that kind of love, that there are no strings attached at all, that kind of love. No infringement, no disagreement, complete tolerance. Well, there's no standard there. There's no plumb line in that love. There's no anchor. Because, see, our, our definition of what is loving actually changes with every generation. It's changed with every generation. And you think about this, you know, in a, in a very kind of recent, if you've been watching the news recently, one generation prior, our ancestors erected statues and did it with great pride. Well, now this generation is toppling those same statues over and doing it with great pride. And I don't say that to make a political statement at all. I'm just trying to point out that the standard changes, doesn't it, over time? That things that perhaps in past generations were considered very loving are now considered hateful, and vice versa. Things that were hateful in the past now perhaps we consider loving because the standard changes. And I, I'm, this is absolutely true. In 100 years... In a hundred years, our, our great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, they're going to laugh themselves silly over the things that we valued and upheld today. Don't you know that's true? I mean, if you backtrack to 1917, a hundred years ago, and you look at the, at the way of life and the values of that culture compared to today, don't we, don't we look down our noses in our culture, at what people believed and, and the way that they behaved back then? Who's to think that somehow in a hundred years it won't be the exact same situation? That here we are, we're thinking as a culture that we're so enlightened and we're so progressive and we're so wise. In a hundred years we're going to be thought to be fools. They're going to look at us like we were cavemen. Because that's how culture functions. There, there it's... Something, listen, something is not loving or right or good just because the shifting sand of culture says it is. The standard, the definition is sure to change with the next generation. But here's what we as Christians believe, that when we use the word love, when we talk about loving behavior, what it means to love, that does have a standard. We do have a plumb line. We do have an anchor for what love really is. We see it all through the scriptures. First John 4 is a great example of this. Where John says, the one who does not love does not know God. Why not? For God is love. And we, we shouldn't bypass the significance of this kind of statement. If you don't love, it's because you don't know God. Why not? Because God is love. Love, God is the very personification of what love is. He is the standard. And so when Paul says his absolute central purpose for life is to make the gospel known to others, he is doing the most loving thing humanly possible here. Paul has made it his life's mission to point people to love itself. The very center of love itself found in the person of Jesus Christ and in his blood shed on the cross for us. There's nothing more loving than that. And so whereas our culture views love as something very broad and very permissive, Paul says, no, love is, is narrower than that. That doesn't mean we don't love everybody. Paul loved everybody. He loved Jews and Greeks. He loved his friends and his enemies. He loved everybody. 
But his, the narrowness of his love was this, in what he was pointing them to. Not a broad, permissive, tolerant, false, flimsy, shifting kind of love, but the very personification of love itself. He was pointing them to Christ and to the grace of his gospel. And so for Paul, listen, his love was built on God's grace. Paul saw himself rightly, and therefore he was able to see others rightly. And his love was motivated by his mission, God's mission, which called Paul to testify of his gospel everywhere he went. Now, when we say, when we say at Harvest Church, love pursues, this is what we mean. Because grace has transformed us, because God's mission calls us outward, calls us beyond ourselves, love pursues. Love doesn't stay isolated. Love doesn't incubate. Love doesn't seek selfish gain and comfort and gratification. Love pursues others for the greater good of God's mission. And you know, there are countless ways to live this out. We're privileged that God would give us not one little formula, but he would give us many ways in the everyday stuff of life to live this out. And so on one hand, at Harvest Church, listen, we're, we're going to be dedicated to finding ways to reach the unreached people groups all around the world, people who have no access to the gospel. We're going to be committed to that. And at the same time, we'll be committed to reaching, loving, serving the marginalized people in Jackson, Mississippi, right outside our doorstep, both abroad and at home, because love pursues. We're going to meet the needs of the poor, yes, but we're also going to share the gospel with the wealthy because we all ultimately, right, we all have the same fundamental problem and the same fundamental need. We need Jesus most of all. And so we're going to share and love and pursue everybody. We're going to stand firmly on God's truth. We're not going to compromise God's truth, but we're also not going to use the truth as a, as a, as a, as if we were going to build a brick wall around ourselves and isolate ourselves from the rest of the world because there's a darkened world that needs that truth, but they need it in the form of grace. We're not going to hold up a banner that says we're right and you're wrong. We will never compromise God's truth, but we're going to engage the world around us with grace. We're going to open our doors uh, to everybody, anybody who's willing to uh, to be loved and to hear the gospel and to know what it is that makes us who we are. Because love pursues. Love doesn't wall people off. Love doesn't dis discriminate. It pursues all the more. And Paul is such a precious example of this. Jew and Greek, friend and enemy, rich and poor, Paul pursued them all the same. Because that's what love does. Here, even more immediately, we're going to find ways to uh, support flood victims in Texas because love pursues. And there are countless ways to do this because God is a gracious God. But I want to encourage you on this point as we close. This is a church value. We say Harvest Church believes that love pursues. We want to build ourselves on that value. But it's not primarily lived out within the church building. It's a church value, but uh, our Sunday gathering is not the primary um, grounds for this. Now, we're called to love one another, and, a, and a, a good portion of that does happen when we gather together on Sundays. It's, it's absolutely necessary and important. But we've said this before. 
the, the legitimacy of Harvest Church is not going to be in our Sunday gathering, especially not in how many people we can fit into a single room for an hour a week. That, that's just not going to be our measure of success. Our success, if you can call it that, will come when we as God's people take it upon ourselves to love as Paul loved, to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's the true measure of our success. That's the true impact we're going to have, not just in our gathering times, but when we scatter for the majority of our weeks. The things that don't happen and can't happen on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon, but that do happen in the real and everyday stuff of life. So in other words, the success of Harvest Church is not going to happen primarily at Harvest Church or within the four walls. It's going to happen as we all take up the mantle to live by grace and to live on mission, to be transformed and to be sent out. And you know, the, as a pastor, the best I can really do, I can, I can try to model this. I can encourage it. I can help facilitate and equip but the real meat of this, the real heart of this, is it takes shape in y'all, in all of us, in the places we live and work and recreate. It's us being committed to the higher purpose to love and to pursue the way we were loved, the way we were pursued by Jesus. Now, we said this before, it, this violates every natural inclination of our hearts. We love ourselves and therefore we want comfort and gratification. We want to pursue happiness. We want to pursue safety and security and self-preservation. We want to build ourselves up by way of our own ambitions. That's what it is to love yourself. But I pray for me because this is I need this. I pray for me and I pray for all of us. That when we peer into the truth of grace, when we peer into the gospel of Jesus and all that he's done for us, that it would shake loose this ugly self-love within us. That we would recognize the ways that we have cheapened that word, love, and made it perhaps about trivial things, things that are not eternal. And that we would come back to center on this. That we would, because of Christ's love for us, that we would experience that love in us and then through us, a love so rich and so deep that I could wake up in the morning with all sincerity, and say something as crazy as this, that I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. How powerful would we as a church be, even at this stage, a small church, how powerful would we be collectively if we sincerely took that mission statement to heart, we would know in that case a love that doesn't just make us happy and comfortable, but a love compelled to pursue that we might be lights in a darkened world. Let's pray for this and let's sincerely ask God to create this kind of love in our hearts.